Hi, James. Hello, Russell. Hi, Vincent. Hi, James. Hi, Russell. There are people here. There's blood on the walls. Help us. There's blood everywhere. Oh, sorry. I spilt my ketchup. So whilst Vincent and James do of that, we're going to talk about horror films whilst they deal with that kind of red situation. You've got red and new, etc. So welcome back to Invasion of the Body People. This is our monthly-ish dive into the world of horror and genre. And between our two recordings, something amazing happened. Didn't it, Vincent? It did happen, Russell. How amazing was it? that you and I got to meet face to face. I mean, there's been a lot of great things that have happened this year. I suppose, you know, the vaccine is is a big one. I mean, that's great for everybody. You know, the vaccine that is um, proving effective against COVID. Um, and um, I mean, just in, in, in at my personal level, I got a new job, which was really, really cool. But the absolute highlight was when Russell and I got to meet face to face because we were both at Fright Fest, which... It was also, you know, pretty damn cool. Um, yeah, after last year having to go on to digital format, um, this year at Fright Fest, uh, one of the world's leading fr- um, horror film festivals, well, you're listening to this podcast, of course you know that, returned <laughs> to um, Cineworld Leicester Square. Five days of, ver- of a very varied array uh, pr- program of horror films um, from all over the world, many getting their UK premiere, their European premiere, their world premiere right there. Um, so Russell and I were both there. Um, it was my second time at attending in person. I think I, I saw a total of 18 films um, with an average, with, with, you know, which is a pretty good average, I think. Um, that's a nice thing about horror films, especially at a festival. They tend to be quite short. Um, as always, it's, it was a very well-organised um, <clears throat> festival. I, you know, it was lovely to see people as well as uh, Russell. I saw, um, got to um, meet again a bunch of people who, who are known through the Evolution of Horror podcast, um, as well as fans of that. And of course, just new people, because one of the best things about um, us horror fans is how incredibly welcoming we are. And you can talk to someone whom you've never met before. And by the end of a couple of days of talking horror movies, it's like they're your best friend in the world. Um, now, I will confess that while masks did stay on in the cinema, that wasn't necessarily the case in the pub. Um, but, uh, well, what are you going to do? And it's been you know a month and I'm still OK. I've had multiple tests. So I seem so the vaccine <laughs> is doing its thing. Um, yeah. Yes. So as well as um, obviously the highlight of meeting Russell in person, there were also um, various great guests there. The festival was introduced by Mark Kermode. Um, I got to meet also Kim Newman, which was um, a bit of a thrill. Um, mm. The director, Prano Bailey Bond, as well as various actors and directors who introduced um, their films. Oh, yes, of course, the films. That's why we were all there, wasn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> well, um, there was, yeah, many films, plenty of good stuff. Also some dross, um, perhaps, you know, not much that was truly outstanding, but um, certainly a lot of stuff I was glad to see. And I believe we all have some picks. Do we have some picks, gentlemen? We do. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. 
because although I was there for the whole festival, I, uh, Russell, you were there for a few select films, and James, yep. you saw a whole bunch of them online, didn't you? That's right. I didn't attend this year's festival, but through the Fantasia Film Festival, which went virtual this year, screeners and coverage for other sites, I managed to get a good selection this year. Hmm. Well, why don't we go around and uh, hear about uh, what we all enjoyed from Fright Fest and um, it, we could all do like our tops of the festival, but let's be a bit more interesting than that and hear from each of us what was our best film, what was the one we most enjoyed, what was our biggest surprise and what was the worst one. James, why don't you go first? Oh, why not? So my best one was this marvellous little time travel comedy entitled Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. And the basic premise is you've got this guy who finishes his job at for the night at this cafe, goes upstairs into his room. He just wants to play guitar. He just wants to relax. But then on the TV comes him from two minutes into the future. He's talking to him from the TV back at the cafe. So he has this whole conversation about, I'm you. I'm in the future. You need to go down and have this conversation. And so he goes down and he finds himself on the other end of that conversation. And this all is just the beginning for this product of great inventiveness, which is told in really smart and joyous ways. It's such an imaginative spin on a well-worn genre. It's very witty. It's very charming. And it's all done in one single take, or at least it appears to be. And it reminds me very much of One Cut of the Dead and how it was as um, excellent doing that same thing for, for for the zombie genre but Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes has done that very well with time travel subgenre and that was my best of the festival. The one I most enjoyed was from Richard Bates Jr, a charming little director who delivered a fantastic little horror film called Excision and he returned this year with King Knight and this basically follows uh, the leader of a coven called Fawn who who looks after his makeshift family he he helps them get through their own personal problems and he gets through the day selling bird baths But his life is thrown into a tailspin when the past comes a knocking in the form of a high school reunion. And he has to reveal to his his wife and his loving family that that he wasn't always this outcast. He was previously a jock. He was, oh my God, popular. And it's this heartfelt and humorous story about opening yourself up to a world which won't be accepting and the loving bonds of the family you make told through a Californian coven. And it's really funny, and it made my heart swell three sizes larger, and I'd really recommend that enjoyable piece. My biggest surprise was a film called No Man of God. Now, it's about... It it takes place within these rooms of detailing conversations between Ted Bundy and an FBI profiler. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, really? Another Ted Bundy film? Yeah, I was the same. But what's crucial about this is it's not one of those interested in romanticising the serial killer, trying to make him out as this master of disguise. No, he's just a prick who killed people. And the film dismantles the myth of him through compelling conversations 
and really gets you involved in this uh, this growing bond between FBI profiler and this monster who are ultimately well who are ultimately just two people who know what the other is but they're still having these excellent conversations and it's got phenomenal performances from Luke Kirby and Elijah Wood that one's out on on digital download right now and I really recommend it because it is not the film you think it's going to be from the from the premise and now my worst a little film called The Retaliators and yeah. Ooh, was that a cat? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Meow. Um, so The Retaliators is a film which tells you how it's got this awesome soundtrack from Five Finger Death Punch, and it's got members of Papa Roach and starring and in the film, and Tommy Lee appears as a DJ. And what it seems like, it's a film more interested in its rock credentials than delivering a good film. It's essentially a tale about this pastor whose daughter is unfortunately killed and his journey of revenge. And what initially begins is seemingly subverting the idea of revenge before it takes step backwards towards regressive ideas. And... It seems to have a moral of, hey, it's okay to be violent in front of your kids. And to reach that, our lead has to make stupid decisions which lead him to kill 40 people and cause innocent deaths. And it was horrible. Um, (laughs) Thankfully... It was the rarity in my Fright Fest experience this year, and I shall not speak of it again. So, Russell, I hope you saw better films than Retaliators this year at Fright Fest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so my worst is the retali- Retaliators, but instead of punching down on a film twice, because I'll be honest, you're probably not going to hear much from the Retaliators going forward, because... Eh. <laughs> I'm going to go with my most disappointing film because my other worst film is is teased to what Vincent's going to say. My second worst is Vincent's worst film. So, you know, the two films I really didn't care for at Fright Fest are going to be covered. So my most disappointing is is a film that the trailer makes it like it's really fun. The setup sounds great. It's Prisoners of the Ghostland. So it's Nicolas Cage working... With Sion Sono and and those two combined, you think they're going to make an incredible film, and they didn't really. It was just a sort of mediocre ripoff of Escape from New York, and so it's about Nicolas Cage being strapped into a suit that's going to blow him up if he doesn't in five days return someone's granddaughter to them. And there's lots of fun stuff being flung at the screen, but it it's like. It's like there's a hose of shit being flung at the screen and some of it sticks, but most of it doesn't. And it's quite a deflating watch. And I really want it to be better than it was. And I can't decide if it's because it was the fourth film of that day. So I saw it on the Saturday and I'd seen um, the last thing Mary saw, which is a solid little horror. And I saw uh, uh, Sweetie, You Won't Believe It, which was hilarious. 
and I went and saw Candyman, which wasn't at Fright Fest, but was incredible. And then I watched this, and maybe it's because having followed up Candyman, which I had a lot of, I had a good time with, to this, is, it might be why I didn't really gel with it. And also, Nicolas Cage is the star of my second favourite film of the year in the form of Pig. Pig is phenomenal. Pig is one of those films that utterly surprised me, was not what I expected in the best way possible, and Prison of the Ghost Land was not what I wanted it to be in the worst way possible. So it's not it's not the worst thing I saw at Fright Fest, but it is the one that I was like, I could have just not seen that. I could have just ignored that. My most enjoyable. So there was this nifty little New Zealand set thriller called Coming Home in the Dark, which is lean and mean and and very nasty and has this incredible first third that just... Ah, the opening of this film is just, it was perfect. And it has these really awful acts taking place fairly early on. But it, it works so well. I, I I love this film. It's about a family coming into contact with two strangers that they really shouldn't come into contact with out in the New Zealand wilderness. And I, I think you should go in as cold as possible with this film. I'm, I think you should really avoid spoilers because... There are surprises fairly early on and you don't want to ruin the surprise. I had no idea what was going to happen. And then something happens like, and I was stunned. And that one was, yeah, that one is a really, really great fun film. I really hope it gets picked up and shown and you can watch that because oh, I had fun with it. And it was just nasty in a way that I really wanted at 11 o'clock at night when I watched it. Uh, my biggest surprise. So uh, Fright Fest has this first blood scheme. So they show a lot of these uh, either first-time or second-time directors, British or, you know, UK indie films. And one of them this year was Bringing Out the Fear, which is this small Irish folk horror that is about a couple getting lost in the woods and then the woods becomes eternal and stretches out for days. Well, beyond time and space, the wood exists. And it's just this really, really groovy folk horror that got under my skin and stayed there for several days. And uh, while it's not you know, it's a bit rough around the edges. It's still a really exciting, uh, small affair that I really admire Fright Fest for giving platform for these films so they can go off and be shown. So they show like five or six films a year and through this scheme. And like Alien on Stage was in it before. This uh, The Serial Killer's Guide to Life was there. Oh, uh, Death of a Vlogger has gone through this scheme. So they get really great little horrors that otherwise might not get attention and they get to be shown. And also special mention to the Advent Calendar, which was a great surprise and is a lot of fun. It's this great little French Christmas horror that I think is um, has been picked up by Universal. And I, I expect Blumhouse are going to remake that at some point. But that was a really fun watch. But my best of the festival, and I could have gone for the three and a half hour long folk horror documentary, Woodlands Darkened, Days Bewitched, which kind of bucks the trend of the festival by being just excessively long and that was so detailed about the genre that it was wonderful but I felt that one sitting with that was too much I kind of wanted it to be like bite-sized so I could go off and watch in 20 minute installments or 30 minute installments it's in, it's in six chapters and I think I'd like six episodes of a folk horror documentary but my favorite of the festival is this wonderful thriller and it's not really a horror it, there's horror elements to it and it's it's what I love about this festival is that uh, it has a lot of horror, obviously, because the horror festival has a lot of genre ones. So James's favourite is a Japanese time loop comedy. Uh, my uh, most enjoyable was a thriller, and it's not really a horror. 
I watched a great documentary about found footage. There's all these like great comedies, great uh, thrillers, great uh, documentaries that work their way into this. And this was, is a terrific thriller. And it's about this woman who moves into this flat and starts to hear knocking from above her. And no one else acknowledges it. No one else is paying attention to it. No one else thinks this is happening. And it kind of teases whether or not it's it's she's having a some kind of episode. And it does it really well. And it just... By bringing us into this headspace and mindset of someone who is going through something that no one else believes her about, it was great. It was, it was really good. I loved Knocking so much. It's the film of the festival for me. And it hasn't really got as much attention as I want it to. It was up against uh, No Man of God. So I think it kind of got a bit lost in the shuffle. But yeah, Knocking is my film of the festival. Vincent, as the man who was there for the entire weekend, what did you love and what did you not? Well, what's interesting is, um, yeah, because uh, I've seen some of the ones that you guys mentioned. I was also very impressed with um, uh, No Man of God and um, not impressed by prisoners of the ghost land i remember in prisoners of the ghost land nick cage seemed to spend quite a lot of it on his back unconscious and i was like so is this inviting us to doze off because i could <laughs> anyway um but my worst of the festival start was actually the first film of the festival so you know it started horribly and then got better um because the first <laughs> the, the first and worst film of fright fest was neil blomkamp's um, new film Demonic. Now Neil Blomkamp, I'm sure most of us would agree, started so strongly back in 2009 with um, District 9. Um, he largely stayed in the realm of science fiction with Elysium and Chappie. Um, and after you know some time away and uh, his mooted and then <laughs> dead on arrival alien um, suggested uh, film, he comes back with what he said in his introduction, he wanted to try something new with this sort of pure horror. Well, it's, it is a horror film, yes, demonic is, and it's got elements of science fiction as well. It's also very stodgily written. It's highly over-stylized. It has these virtual reality sequences that actually look like someone stepped into Sims. Um, and <laughs> it's really boring. <laughs> so... Um, that was, yeah, and I'm yet to come across anyone who enjoyed Demonic. And I think we're all so disappointed that Blomkamp has really lost his mojo. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so Demonic was the start, and uh, but after that, things got better. The most surprising film of the festival actually was the same night as Demonic. Um, that was Crabs! <laughs> with an exclamation mark. One must say it with an exclamation mark. Uh, Crabs! which I describe as Gremlins meets Aliens meets Godzilla meets Sharknado. And if that doesn't sell it to you, I don't know what will. Um, it uh, yeah, has the premise of this um, sleepy uh, beach town gets invaded by a bunch of mutant horseshoe crabs, as you do. Um, which uh, develop in that's the grem and, and they get very not only do they prove to be very vicious and dangerous they also turn out to be very mischievous that's the gremlins side of it um, and um, then later on they get bigger which is the aliens side of things and then the end of it goes into 
Godzilla territory, um, but the the tone of it is so completely tongue-in-cheek and blah, crazy bonkers, that it reminded me kind of of Sharknado. So, but I will say this, not only does it have all this n- mad stuff going on and a fair bit of gore, it's actually also quite sweet. So I think that uh, Crabs was surprising because it had all of these different elements and they just about worked. The film I most enjoyed was one I saw on a screener slightly before the festival, so maybe I'm cheating, whatever, and that was Bloodthirsty, which um, did this very nice thing that I have seen from a number of... uh, a really good demonstration of contemporary Canadian horror, because I've seen a few of these films in recent years. Um, They tend to be you know, they're, they're independent films, so they're fairly small, you know, a small cast, often kind of chamber pieces, so they're in contained environments, but they tend to be very atmospheric, um, and the filmmakers are making use of that sort of, maybe I'm unfairly stereotyping here, but this sort of wry, cool humour um, and cool attitude that seems very Canadian somehow. Um, maybe everyone, maybe these are particularly horror directors taking their cue from David Cronenberg. Who knows? Um, Bloodthirsty is creepy. It is atmospheric. It is deeply unsettling. And it does a really nice job of incorporating musical production into kind of um, journey of self-discovery and uh, you know, an aspect of, um, uh, and of course, a horrific um, journey of self-discovery as well. Um, so, and Bloodthirsty has, um, I will also say, a really effective soundtrack, which is integrated into the film because the main character is a singer. Um, so yes, Bloodthirsty. I will say no more about it, but uh, it was definitely the film I enjoyed the most. But the film that impressed me the most, and that I'm going to say was for me the best film of the festival. I actually saw this was on the penultimate day. Um, in the afternoon, so it wasn't like the last film or anything, and that was Sound of Violence. Or, if you prefer, would you like... I want to play a tune. It's, um... Oh, sorry. I want to play a tune. <laughs> it's kind of like... It is a lot like Saw, um, although the director has said that they never actually saw Saw beforehand. Um, and it involves this... Um, a young woman who, again, a, a musician, seems to be a to have been a, a, a festival of scary musicians, who is um, hearing impaired and discovers that she can see pain when people suffer, when she inflicts violence on people, she can see it, and by seeing it, she can make the most beautiful. She makes the most beautiful music. Um, you will never look at a DJ's um, mixing desk in quite the same way. <laughs> um, it's intense, it's visceral, it's disturbing, it's pleasingly intersectional as well. Um, we often say that uh, it's, it's good to see horror um, working with um, particular um, sort of <clears throat> engaging with social and political issues, um, sometimes overtly, which I suspect we will come on to in a little while. Um, but also um, just um, sort of incidentally. And so that was there in Sound of Violence, which uh, also managed to have a uh, um, a thoroughly intelligent um, horror movie cop. Like, oh, that's nice. 
because um, sometimes you get the random cop turns up in these movies and they just seem unnecessary and they are essentially very dumb for reasons best described as plot but in this case I thought the cop was actually pretty smart and yeah Sound of Violence that was my highlight of the festival it was one of the most uh, disturbing films I saw and hey that's what you want at a horror film festival isn't it <laughs> sounds great uh, yeah I'll I'll add that to my list I haven't caught that one yet but I will definitely check that out it sounds um like an experience it certainly was um and there were plenty of others that um yeah as I say I saw um, a lot of stuff there there was um Slapface um The Kindred Ultrasound Gaia EV Off Season the exorcism of Carmen Farias. I could go on and on about it. However, dear listeners, rather than just listening to me, you can also go to Snakebite Reviews, anywhere you will see reviews of some of these films by myself and James and Russell, among others. He will cat and mouse with you. He will make you think you are getting somewhere. Press record and let's get this party started. It is February 13th, 1986. This is Agent Bill Hagmeyer. I'm sitting with Theodore. Oh, Ted. I'm sitting with Ted Bundy. And speaking of reviews, our next bit is going to be to cover one of the big releases of the last month, which I also saw on Fright Fest weekend. So, you know, kind of all links up. <laughs> and James, what film are we going to chat about this month? Well, we are going to chat about the long-awaited sequel to Bernard Rose's 1992 classic, confusingly with the same name, Candyman. Great. Four more times I've got to say it and I'm fucked. Now, obviously, the 1992 film received sequels before this new one, but nobody wants to talk about them and for good reason. What? Hold on, hold on. I have to say one thing about one of the sequels. Oh, yeah. So the third one is set in, I think, 2020 because mm-hmm. it's the the child of the character in the second one. So they have to jump ahead. Apparently, they do nothing to update to make it look futuristic it's just the same setting but they say it's 2020 mm-hmm. so it means that it's set after the new one. Oh yeah that's <laughs> a trick <laughs> let's carry on with the good big candy man yes let's talk about a good sequel to the film <laughs> okay so this long-awaited sequel originally set to be released last year before the world went tits up as was directed by Nia da Costa with Jordan Peele among the writers and producers. And the story follows this painter called Anthony, who seeks inspiration for his next project within this gentrified area with a familiar name, Cabrini Green. It's there that he learns of this true story behind the legend of the Candyman. Now, this opens a door for him which unravels his own sanity amidst what can only be described as this horrifying wave of violence going on with involving mirrors and a certain hook-handed figure wearing a quite a jazzy coat. And I think what works so well is that Nia does Costa takes what was subtext in the original film and makes it text here and utilises it for thoughtful material... Uh, which really touches upon relevant issues and delivers that alongside unsettling horror set pieces. And this is one of those films which the fantastic evolution of horror calls frame analysis horror, 
where you are looking in the background, trying to see for the slightest change. And when your eye catches it, oh, your spine is thoroughly chilled. Now, I will say, I always appreciate a short film. And the 91 minute runtime <laughs> of this one is. Mwah. Although a longer runtime would have been welcome for me. And I think there are certain elements which could have used a bit more time to breathe. But that didn't diminish from my experience with this film, which I think was an exemplary way to update this fearsome legend and continue on in ways that by the end of it, I was wanting to see more of. But now this came out at Fright Fest weekend. I too saw it at at the weekend that Russell did. That was my only bit of horror that weekend, so, but I was thoroughly fed. Now, Russell, what, since you saw this among quite the weekend, would you say <laughs> this was wonderful bit of your weekend, or or am I just needlessly teasing this out? No, this was absolutely the best thing I saw of the weekend, which is, is slightly damning of Fright Fest. I mean, I would have loved this to have got a slot on the first day of Fright Fest, but... It's just one of those things. But this is definitely one of those ones that has lovely, coherent uh, vision to what it wants to do with the material, which is great. And yeah, so I dived away from Fright Fest to Picture House Central. So I went to a nice cinema. I watched it on a nice screen because it deserves it because it's gorgeously constructed. The cinematography, the score, how it is made is just beautiful. It's just a beautiful work of cinema. Yeah, I really, really gelled with this. And from further away i gel with it more the stuff that really works really does stand out for me and it's it's an impressively angry film and i don't mean that it's shrill and shouting i mean that that all the stuff that's in there all the real lived experience that goes into this film makes it so powerful for me and such an incredible watch i particularly liked the first two acts i think the first two acts are really effective at setting up all the stuff it's talking about and going through this conversation whilst being a really frightening and entertaining horror, like the bit fairly early on. So not to give away spoilers, but there's a bit early on where someone climbs out of a hole in the wall and it's this terrifying image. And it's, it's as scary as you'd expect of someone climbing out of a wall, which is frightening. Um, Yeah. There was so much I liked about this film. And I, I when I say it's the best of the, Fright Fest weekend. That's not to uh, say that the stuff I saw at Fright Fest wasn't good. It's just that this is confident and coherent horror in a way that uh, is really hard to do. It was it, it impressed me because it's really hard to do what Candyman does almost effortlessly. Vincent, are you a fan? Absolutely. I um, had my Fright Fest weekend kind of bracketed with other horror releases because. Um, the Tuesday before Fright Fest started, I saw Sensor, um, and then the following day I saw The Night House, and then on the then Fright Fest went from Thursday to Monday, and then on the Wednesday um, of the week of, of the week after that, um, sorry, the same week, <clears throat> um, I saw Candyman. So that was like you know t- nearly twenty horror films in the space of a week, <laughs> and. Candyman, um, as well as Censor, actually, um, is right up there in some of my top, my top like five films of the year. Um, yeah, I agree I, with um, 
what uh, you were saying, James, I thought the length was perfect. Um, and I also agree with that you said, Russell, that it is a wonderfully confident film. There is no sense of sort of uncertainty. And I think that is largely because of um, uh, Nia Costa's, you know, very firm placement um, of the film within the, uh, very much within the African-American community. This is a black film in the best possible way. I have seen come across some um, people complaining about why does it have to be so woke? Why is it um, banging on about um, uh, racial politics? And let us not forget, we are three white dudes talking about this, but as a white dude, I absolutely loved having the politics front and centre because if you know the ongoing um, presence of these things in our in, in discourse and media is anything to go by we have to be upfront and blatant about this um you know i think that um artists like um near costa and jordan peel um it's important to say this is a costa film you know she is the writer director um that you know they need to put the topics the issues um front and center because it makes perfect sense to interweave tales of um, racial oppression with bloody supernatural horror. Um, I mean, the inclusion, I mean, as something we haven't mentioned, is a beautiful aspect of the film is the shadow puppetry, um, which is utilised um, at various points within the film in, and then is played over the credits, as the cred works during the credits as well. Um, and Da Costa uses the shadow puppetry to beautifully express some the various incarnations of Candyman, as well as actual events in American history, such as Emmett Till and George Stinney. Google them, people. They are stories far more horrific than any horror film. Um, and point being, this is very much a film in which black lives are shown to matter when we see time and again that to polite American society somehow they don't matter and the truth because the true face of fear as one character says is all too human and all too white um so this is a film i think that insists that the viewer takes note remember and spread the word say his name indeed yeah, yeah and and the point there so as with get out and as of this get out was made and created and made during a time of Obama, but came out in the time of Trump. So it was reflecting something that happened there. This was made and in the can before the uh, before the death of George Floyd, but because we are seeing it in a light post the death of George Floyd and the other prominent African-American deaths that took place last year in America, it, it gains a resonance, but it's also talking about stuff that's been there before and we're just now kind of fully focusing in on things. So... Yeah, it was. It's the anger that has that has made me so, that has stayed with me so much with this film. It is that it is an angry film, and rightfully so. Like the whole bollocks about it being woke. No, horror is always good. Horror has always been responding to the world around it. Where's Craven did it in the seventies? We had it in the eighties, the nineties, the noughties. I mean, torture porn exists because it was responding to the terrible things that were happening in the world at that time. And, and I don't think all those films are great, but some of them are conversationally interesting. And so this is 
just reflecting where we are, just reflecting that you can't have a film like Candyman without it talking about the lived experience of black people in America and the world, frankly, and the entire Western world and everywhere they have terrible experience. So, yeah, I yeah, this film is the best horror I've seen this year. And I would like to add how I really appreciated a character looking down and sit down a very sinister looking trip to the basement and just going, nope, nope. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 indeed. Uh, so clearly all characters in horror movies need to watch that movie and think, oh yeah, good idea. <laughs> That's most annoying when it's a zombie film and nobody knows the basic rules that have been going on for fucking decades in cinema also i will say two things one this is a really fun horror this is just as a horror it's really good fun and it's really enjoyable and it has some great set pieces one of which i wish wasn't in the trailer there's one in a high school that i wish hadn't been in any of the trailers because it comes in the middle and it's a really great sequence but because we've seen it we kind of know it's coming and the other one is, I forget the name of the lead actor, but he is gorgeous in this. And he spends about 20 minutes of the first half in his boxes. And I was like, you are gorgeous. You are just... And yet, people are shot wonderfully in this. You can tell that the director knows how to shoot people in a gorgeous fashion. Yeah. So I had fun with this amongst its politics. And also, the lead was fucking sexy. Yeah, yeah. Abdul Mateen II. That's mm -hmm. his name. And you're right. He and is I think stunning. he's in the new Matrix as a young Morpheus. And he plays a Black Mantra in Aquaman. Mantis. Who, and I kind of... Black Mantis, thank no, you. No, Black Manta. I kind of adored him in that. No, it is. Manta, even. Yeah. Whoever it is. <laughs> he was the villain in Aquaman. And I, I had loved him in that. Hmm. <laughs> he is a very pretty man. You're right. I'll say another nice thing about it. It's, you know, we're, we're, we're all, I'm sure we're all familiar with the male gaze of mm. cinema but it's um kind of nice to have a you know the idea of this being a, a film directed by a woman um you know to have his body uh being presented as a visual spectacle it's a nice inversion and i think inversion is key to this film and mm. um, how yes yaya is very sexy in this film but there are some fucking skin crawling effects work at the <laughs> Oh god, yes. Like, not the bees. Ugh. Not the bees. Wrong film, but you know what I'm getting at. <laughs> oh, skin crawls just thinking about it. Christ. Yeah. It's got so many different types of horror. There's ghost, there's slasher, <laughs> there's folk, urban, there's body horror. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just a horror. It's just a really great weaving of a horror film. And yeah, it just. It was. You should say his name. I dare you. Candyman. 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 Don't. Don't say that. Um, Shall we move from the sublime to something far less to the good? Yes. To the mm -hmm. wretched. <laughs> so. Our feature this month is a thing called The Sin Bin. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm stealing this from another podcast I listened to who did an episode just like this. But it's just a fun thing that I thought we could do as an exercise. And that is that we're going to place each three films we are not fans of in the bin. So we're going to pick a sequel, a remake, and a controversial pick. We're going to pick a film 
that some people love, but we don't gel with. You know, this is going to get us fun. in a lot of trouble, don't you? Oh, <laughs> I don't care. If no, you want to stop listening, now, stop listening now, we've said how good Candyman is and go watch Candyman. Hey, how many times have you guys said Candyman? We're already in trouble. Well, there's no mirror near me. I can say... Ah, yeah. reflection in the camera. In your, in your glasses, James. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, it's fine. Well, I I've think, had a fun life. Well, who knows? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure everyone. Um, <laughs> oh no, it's Tony Todd. Yes. No, I'm not going to do an impression. <laughs> oh no, anyway, no, yeah, no, no one can not. do Tony's no, voice. No, 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 no. Um, shall we start with our sequel picks? Okie dokie. I'm going to go with Vincent first for your sequel pick. Okay. Are you sitting comfortably? <laughs> Cracks knuckles. <laughs> okay. I could say you're not going to get a rant, but you are. Despite, Russell and I have ranted about this previously on the Not Just for Kids Film Club. We both hate this film. I hate it, loathe it, detest it, despise it for multiple reasons. It is Terminator Genesis. Now, Personally, on a purely personal level, I hate Terminator Genesis because the Terminator franchise is really important to me. As a teenager, the first two Terminator films, Schwarzenegger and James Cameron, helped me develop my film appreciation. Now, I'm not saying that Genesis pissed on my childhood, because that's silly, <laughs> but it does fundamentally fail to live to what came up before. Stylistically... As a sci-fi action film, it is neither ex it is not exciting or engaging. Alan Taylor is a functional but uninspired director, and my abiding memory of the action sequences is the sound of metal clanking. Thank you. I needed the reminder that these are machines. Narratively, it is a complete mess because it retcons the previous instalments and actually tries to play with and unravel the wibbly-wobbly timey-wimey and in the process become so absurdly convoluted that it gives me a headache just thinking about it. We have 1984, as we know it, but not. There's stuff in 1973, eh? We have the obligatory 2029 sequence. Weird to think that 2029 is now closer than 1984, but whatever. And, of course, we jump forward to 2017, then, because reasons... Thematically, there is no explanation, exploration of the blurring between humanity and technology, a point I will come back to in another of my picks. It seems to be a matter of, like, Skynet, Genesis, evil, take over the world, grrrr. Character-wise, some bright spark decided to fuck up some well-established characters for no discernible reason. Kyle Reese, as played by Charisma Vacuum Jay Courtney, didn't we love that <laughs> moment in The Suicide Squad? has been taken over, has, has none of the pain or the PTSD needed to make that character compelling. John Connor, taken over by Skynet, which is spoiled in the trailer, but even without that, it adds nothing to the story because John becomes effectively just another shape-shifting Terminator figure. Been there, done that. The T-800-101, Arnie, is a mass of contradictions. He's been with Sarah since 1973, ostensibly learning to be more human, which we saw in Terminator 2, like with his attempts at smiling. 
Now this is used in Genesis as a joke that becomes tired from its first iteration as Pops, as he's known, gives a gurning grimace and says, It is nice to see you. And this joke is played again and again. And if the AI of a Terminator enables it to learn, this one seems to be broken. Because that's the key problem. The film is more interested in winking or gurning at the audience. And somehow everyone involved forgot to focus on telling the film's own story. The 1984 sequence riffs and reworks the opening of the original film, and whatever nostalgia they might be is quickly lost, because the film seems to keep stopping to say, hey, remember this? Yes, I do, and you have ruined it. And worst of all, the crowning turd in the water pipe is the <laughs> film's treatment of Sarah Connor, one of the most significant and iconic figures of action cinema of any gender. Now, rather than the remarkable transition we get between the, the first two Terminator films, here, Sarah is infantilised into some sort of hybrid between a valley girl and a biker chick. Previously, she, this woman wrenched her own identity out of the male-dominated narrative and became the source of voice and vision. Here, she is relegated to the whining object of the men in her life ready to be passed from her surrogate father to her pre-packaged partner. So, through its treatment of the characters, the mythos and the themes that made the franchise amazing and ended perfectly well in 1991, Genesis, Genesis <coughs> wretches all over the Terminator franchise, this retrograde regurgitation which lacks drama, conviction, wit, imagination and invention, belongs in the Bin. Mic drop. <laughs> I'll use this moment to plug Not Just For Kids, where we have talked about both Terminator 2 in our main feed and all the Terminator other ones in my movie club feed, including us talking about how fucking terrible Genesis is. And I concur with the hatred of Genesis. It is... It's the angriest I've ever been in a cinema is watching that film. James, do you have anything nice to say about Terminator Genesis? Yeah, it ended. <laughs> but well said. In all honesty, point. The, the thing I like to repeat about Genesis is that a more appropriate name would have been Terminator Genitals because it's utter bollocks. <laughs> well done. You managed to, what took me about five minutes to go on about, you managed to do it in five <laughs> words. Well done. I should learn brevity from you. <laughs> And James, your reward is to tell us what is your sequel that's going in the bin? So, from our previous segment, where we talked about a fantastic follow-on to a Clive Barker classic, we're coming to <laughs> the ninth sequel to a cl another Clive Barker cl classic. Only this one, the fantastic writer and director has said is not from his mind, or even from his arsehole. It is Hellraiser Revelations. Now, it's an understatement to say the Hellraiser series has many bad films, which follow on from the excellent first film. And for my money, this first one, which Doug Bradley actually chose to not return for, is the absolute worst of them all. And <laughs> it's a film which is not coy about its behind the scenes. This was made in a matter of weeks, 
It was a quick turnaround just to keep a hold of the right fra- the franchise rights. And boy, does it show. Because what this cheap rush job does is leave us stuck between these two stories. One involves a found footage tale of these two unbearable bros who go to Mexico for debauchery, for drunkenness, for being assholes to the locals. And, oh yeah, there's Hellraiser stuff, which just reminds you, huh, the first film did this much, much better. And it switches from moments of that to a house containing these two dickheads' families. And (laughs) as they're grieving for these kids who who have not come home, who are reportedly missing, these characters switch from between being angry, horny, and stupid in such a short span of time, you wonder what the hell is going on with these guys. It's, oh, I, this is just a serious low point, which actually made me long for the entries where it was random scripts which were retooled to just include Cenobites, despite them feeling so out of place. But you know what? In all fairness, that's like saying, of all the knives to shove up my ass, this made me long for the ones which weren't rusty. (laughs) It's one of the worst films I've ever seen. It is dreadful. Do not see it. I love that um, as as we get into, really get into proper rant mode, it's I, I expect this happens with all of us. We sort of keep getting higher. I'm getting higher and higher because I'm annoyed. Well, I'm afraid my sequel pick is not nearly as bad as those two, and it's more the emotional attachment I have to the one before it. I was going to pick Alien vs. Predator Requiem, which is a really terribly shot, terribly lit, terrible excuse of a film, but... By this point, you expect that from the second Alien vs. Predator. The one I'm going to pick is the sequel to Jurassic Park. And if you've listened to my other podcast at all, or I might have mentioned this, Jurassic Park is my favourite film. It's it's perfection for me. It's what I watch when I'm feeling happy and sad, when I want to lift, when I want to just enjoy myself. I've watched it countless times. It's like my favourite album by my favourite band, I can play any of those scenes and they are wonderful tracks. I can watch them out of sequence or all together. But my sequel pick is The Lost World, which takes everything I love about the first and just does it much worse. And it's just the problem with The Lost World are multifaceted. Whereas in the first one, I think the humans are relatively okay and they just make some poor choices. And even Dennis in the first one, while he does, you know, turn the power off. He's still an entertaining character when he's turning off the power that's, you know, fucking over our characters. In this, all the characters are just horrible people doing horrible things to each other. And it's just ridiculous. The plot is stupid. There's a second island because, of course, there's a second island. And I think it's a thing from the second book, but I can't really remember the second book that much. I know it's different from this, but not enough. The acting is... Vince Vaughn's in this in a serious role, which, you know, is you know only semi, you know, worth your time. He's not very good in this. Julianne Moore is not very good in this. Jeff Goldblum is playing a different character named Ian Malcolm. Because, and that's what he does in every single film in Jurassic Park, by the way. He just plays a completely different version of 
uh, Ian Malcolm. Maybe he's a variant. Maybe it's like Loki and there's just all these variants <laughs> running around of Ian Malcolm and we just keep seeing different ones. I don't know. The Yeah, and the plot is ridiculous. The film ends with dinosaurs in a city, which is just stupid. There's a T-Rex running around killing people and it's a not very entertaining ripoff of Godzilla. Uh, I like exactly two things about The Lost World, which is Pete Pofferswaite, because you can never hate Pete Pofferswaite. And he's very fun in this as the hunter. And I like the bit in the long grass with the Velociraptors. And thankfully, the Velociraptors aren't nice in this. I really don't want domesticated Velociraptors in any of my Jurassic Park films. But really why this is here is because it's a crushing disappointment that this exists. And while I'm not sure if it's the worst Jurassic Park, it goes in the bin because it's the most disappointing because it's Steven Spielberg returning because it's got all the right cast members. It's got all the money. It's got all the effects. And it still is a mediocre Jurassic Park, which is an unforgivable sin. So in the sin bin, it goes. Clatter. <laughs> Uh, on to remakes. Hey, Vincent, what's your remake? Okay, my remake is the 2017 live-action remake of Ghost in the Shell, and I put this in the sin bin because I just recently rewatched the original Ghost in the Shell. I actually saw it at my local Odeon in IMAX, which was kind of cool. Um, so I, I love the original Japanese anime. Um, I've seen it um, several times and I always think of it as this absolutely mind-frying um, masterpiece, um, which, yeah, it is utterly engrossing and enthralling. And the remake isn't. Now, it's we were talking earlier about um, forms of representation and there are certain... There's, there's the well-established uh, criticism of the remake that, well, you've got exceedingly white um, American actress Scarlett Johansson playing this character in a Japanese remake. Now, I will say, on the whitewashing side of things, they're not as pronounced as they could be, because it's worth noting that in the original, the character of Major Kusanagi does not look overtly Asian. So, you know, in that respect, that's another aspect, I think, of the conversation. My problem with the 27 remake is that I think it's naff. I think it's a... I remember I watched it in the cinema and at the end of it I was like, was that it? <laughs> it is... I would sum this it up as saying it is too much shell and too little ghost. Which is to say, it's rather hollow. It looks slick and shiny, but it lacks the existential questioning and probing of identity. Now, granted, that's a bit of a tall order, but that's not just what you find in the original. That's kind; those kind of questions are central to many stories that um, engage films that and stories that deal with artificial intelligence, from Blade Runner to The Matrix to AI to Ex Machina, um, or even the aforementioned Chappie by the uh, by Neil Blomkamp. Um, you know, if you've got artificial intelligence on screen, that really gives you a chance to explore what does it mean to have identity, what does it mean to be a person, what does it mean to be human, yada, yada, yada. And I think Ghost in the Shell 2017 foregoes this by ultimately being too personal. And I think this is a persistent problem in many a contemporary blockbuster. 
from Jason Bourne to Spectre, The Dark Knight Rises to Captain America Civil War and Ghost in the Shell, the story always seems to come down to some personal beef. It might be revenge, it might be parental issues, <coughs> X-Men First Class, um, or just where did I come from? And I think it particularly rankles here because part of technophobia and anxieties over technology is their impersonality. Now, I don't know how familiar you guys are with um, the theory of um, the post-human and post-humanism, but it's what it, you know, to put it very, very reductively and simplistically, the idea is that human identity gets reduced to information. And if you have a think about, you know, just what we're doing right now, and all you lovely people out there in podcast land listening to us, if you think about all our data that gets digitized, downloaded, disseminated, and distributed, it does make a lot of sense that our identity is threatened by our engagement in technology. A ghost in the shell, where you've got a person whose body has been reshaped, and yet she does she retains some aspect of who she was before, does that matter, and she can connect to the internet and have all manner of data going in, well, all that is coming in, how much is going out, and then you've got the questions over this other character who might be some kind of sentient program. It's the ideal story to explore this tension, as shown in the original. But the remake sidesteps all of that in favour of essentially an individual finding her mother. And it's such a missed opportunity to go into greater exploration of the themes from the original, considering how much we've moved on in, since 1995, um, we have an even more digitised world now, post-Web 2.0. So, perhaps, you know, similar to what Russell was saying about um, Jur Jur The Lost World, Jurassic Park, maybe the film isn't, you know, necessarily badly put together. It's, you know, it's no <laughs> Alien versus Predator Requiem, but it is <laughs> deeply disappointing. And for that, in the bin. Ghost in the bin, please. <laughs> James, what's your remake that's going to join it in the bin? Well, my remake is Rob Zombie's 2007 Halloween. Now, cards on the table, John Carpenter's 1978 classic is my all-time favourite horror film. So, going into this film, I was trepidatious, but... I was also open to a different take, which was also good in its own right. It's like how I adore Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead, but I'm also a fan of what Fede Alvarez did with the 2013 remake. And I thought it was interesting how Rob Zombie went to John Carpenter about his plans to remake the film. And Carpenter's only request was that Zombie made it his own. And you know what? He did for about half of it. Um, so what a, what Zombie attempts to do in the first half is expand upon Michael Myers to act as a prequel, delve into this backstory and get into this character's mindset of this kid who would become this fearsome serial killer. And thanks to this, we now know that he comes from a trashy and abusive family who love where the dad father loves to scream at the young baby. And... What this accomplishes is it fails to set Michael Myers apart from other flatly written serial killers. I mean, aren't you wonderful? Aren't you glad that you what was this mystique about the blackest eyes is now reduced to oh he was bullied and he killed pets? 
Oh, such, such revelations. And what happens in the second half is because of Harvey Weinstein, it's essentially becomes a remake of the classic because audiences had to have what they were familiar with. Yeah, thanks. And there was a quote I found about how the filmmakers were going to give Michael Masks, Michael Myers's mask, its own story because they wanted to explain why he wears it. They didn't want it to just have it be him stealing it from a hardware store like he did in the, in the original. So with that vital, vital background, what they've had is this iconic mask, this new version of William Shatner's face painted white, comes from a forgettable character that wants to wear it during sex. Wow. Now, like many of the remakes through this decade, it feels like a product of its time, where we have what was <laughs> a horror, a horror classic, something in this case a quietly tense piece which let you feel the terror is thrown out. So what you get is somewhat something which tries to one up itself in being edgy. And I'll just close this by saying, you know, there's a problem when of all the characters in this film, I hate Michael Myers the least. <laughs> Whoa. When you said that um, there was a history given to the mask, I wondered, oh, did like Michael in his bullied childhood watch Star Trek and want to become Captain Kirk? And then he saw all of the sort of action with the ladies Kirk got and that then the knife suddenly becomes his penis. And yeah, well, uh, let's get psychoanalytic here. But uh, no, it's not that interesting, is it? <laughs> no, that's far more interesting than what the film devised. Hey, maybe we should come up with a remake of Halloween between us. <laughs> no, no, oh, you're no, right. We shouldn't do that. Bad idea. <laughs> My remake pick, and I mean, James has picked the worst remake that I've ever seen. But at least Halloween has some interesting ideas. I mean, I hate all of them. I hate the execution of them. I hate everything it's doing. But at least it's interesting. My pick is is The Hitcher. So The Hitcher in, from the 80s is one of my favourite horrors. Because it's lean, mean, nasty... But beautifully shot. Like, I can't wait for them. To, I think 101 Films are bringing out a beautiful Blu-ray of this. And I can't wait to own it and hold it close to me. I rewatched it recently and it's still utterly gorgeous. But I also recently watched the remake of it. Which is here because it's a Platinum June remake. And it's more... All the Platinum June remakes kind of just suck. So they're Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They're Nightmare on Elm Street. They're Friday the 13th. They all kind of suck. And they're all kind of a period of horror which you, actually it's where the Halloween remake comes from, where, you know, everything was shot like it should be a music video and it's all a bit grimy and you expect someone like Korn to pop up and start screaming into microphone or someone like that. And this is just doing exactly what the original does, repeating all the beats, but stripping out everything that I think is beautiful and interesting about that film. It doesn't have Rutger Howard's wonderful performance as Sean Bean being a villain, and I like Sean Bean, but he's not good in this. There are other cast members whose names I can't remember, and it's just... You never watch a remake of your favourite film. Never watch one of your favourite horrors. Never Just never do it, because it's why I don't like Halloween. Same reason that James doesn't, because you know I love the original, and I love the original Hitcher, and this is just... Yeah, this is just awful. This is just an awful watch, and... It, 
everything Platinum Dune was doing at the time was terrible. I'm very thankful that Michael Bay has lost interest in the horror genre and is going off making action films again. I'm very grateful he's not producing horrors. I mean, he did, yes, he did a quiet place, so we'll give him a quiet place. But you know what? On the whole, these remakes can fuck off, especially The Hitcher. The Hitcher is just... I love The Hitcher, uh, the original, and this is just awful. So, in the bin. <laughs> and we have one last pick. So we're going to... I think I think all of our sequel and remake picks, and most people don't really like them. Let's be honest, that none of these are critically acclaimed. But we're going to do something controversial. We're each going to pick a film that is liked by a lot of people that doesn't gel with us. And this is where people maybe want to skip ahead for, you know, 10 minutes. And then you get some nice Halloween picks. But if not... Vincent, get controversial. It's interesting that you mentioned um, Platinum Dunes and their remakes. I've not seen the remake of Halloween. I have seen the remake of Friday the 13th, and I actually quite like it. I also quite like the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't like the original (laughs) A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes, I don't like Wes Craven's um, 1984 classic, At Me If You Want. I have never found this film scary, and frankly, I think it's silly. I think the concept is unsettling, but the execution is bungled. Now, I understand that Freddy Krueger is held up as this archetypal bogeyman, but, um, linking back to what uh, James was saying, I find Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers more unsettling because of their silence and their inhumanity. Um, You know, the shape, the... Um, you know, the burlap sack, the uh, the iconic masks. Um, and the weird thing is, because they have this silence, that I think makes them very inhuman. And although Freddy is supernatural, he is more human because he's having a lot of fun with it. And that, I think, is the problem. Whereas um, Halloween and Friday the 13th are very sort of basic and stripped down, um, I feel that everything about A Nightmare on Elm Street is overdone from Freddy to the basic concept of it could all be a dream. So I find that the film rather undoes its own conceit. Um, Just to give you an example, I think the final set piece especially annoys me. So in the final set piece, we have Nancy, our heroine, our final girl. She tells her dad to wake her up in 20 minutes, right? Then she goes back to the house and then we have this montage where she's setting up a whole bunch of traps And I'm watching this and thinking, it would take a lot longer than 20 minutes to set all of that up. Now, if I'm (laughs) worrying about that, clearly the film is not engaging me. And despite all of these traps, how does she finally defeat Freddy? By turning her back on him. Now, just to give a comparison, um, over the years, I've heard many complain about the non-dream, dream logic of Inception. Now, Inception, for me, makes far more of the dream concept because Christopher Nolan has a specific conceit of shared dreams that different dreamers can influence. That's how the logic of Inception works. Fine. Whereas I think in A Nightmare on Elm Street, the the dream logic, the mythos, is much woollier and frankly lazier in its concept and its execution, and that makes it not work for me. Now, having said that, I suspect I may have seen the film at the wrong age. Most fans of this film rave about 
seeing it when they were apparently far too young. Now, I remember when I was nine or ten, I knew kids at school who had seen it and went on about Freddy being so much scarier than Dracula because he had knives for fingers. Okay, yeah, that, that's what makes something scary. Got it. And, but I first <laughs> saw this film when I was in my mid-twenties, by which time I had seen the Scream trilogy and Halloween and The Shining and The Silence of the Lambs, possibly my own personal scariest film of all time, The Descent. And I think I was perhaps too jaded and, let's face it, pretentious for A Nightmare on Elm Street. It seemed rather old hat. I've given it another chance. I watched it at a cinema, um, at a cinema on a Halloween screening. And I've actually, um, thanks to one of our lovely friends, acquired um, the box set of all of the, um, the whole franchise from the original up to New Nightmare. At some, at some point, I will go through the entire franchise and maybe I'll eat my words then. But right now, it doesn't work for me and it goes in the bin. I'm aware, and I sort of apologise, because I'm aware that this film means a great deal to many people who, if they're listening, are now probably very angry with me. Well, <laughs> if it helps, maybe this is all a dream. <laughs> James, as the person I know who is a fan of this film, I'm going to move on to you for your pick. Okay. Uh, are we uh, by the way, James, are we still friends? <laughs> it takes a lot more than that to, to end friendship. It takes me. a village to tear down a nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> no worries, Vincent. Um, remember that when I come with my controversial choice, which is a pretty well-regarded action film from the past decade entitled The Raid Redemption. Now, the story is there is a basic setup of these cops going to a building looking to arrest this crime lord, and the, they have to fight their way out of it. It's a it's a bloody bone crunching action film, and I have no problem with the the bloody brilliant action. I have eyes. The choreography is fucking impressive and there's especially one kill which just made me ooh every time I see a gif of it it's the way these actors move so fluidly from each action beat to the next it's marvellous absolutely some exceptional action film scenes but I don't care for anything else and honestly I think that's down to what I feel is poor character work. Like, the characters in it, I just don't care about them. They just, from the heroes we're meant to root for, or to the villains we're meant to boo, hiss at, I just think they're lacking personality. I feel, they feel underwritten to me. They don't feel like characters who I'm interested to see how they fare in this scenario but puppets who enact fight scenes and pile up the body count to a poor techno soundtrack. I mean, I love martial arts films. Films like Police Story, Fist of Legend and Enter the Dragon. I feel they deliver on the phenomenal, phenomenal action and still get me to care for the characters and especially get invested in their lives and their day-to-day -day routine 
and what their life is like outside of these having to kick-ass action scenes, which leaves them fighting for their lives. But I don't get any of that with The Raid. I've seen this film twice, and it's just left me cold. In all actuality, I prefer the sequel, because it gives me what I feel was missing from this instalment. Now, I do appreciate this film for giving the world equal ways. But Jesus Christ, Hollywood, stop wasting his talents on poor (laughs) action vehicles. I want to see his fighting skills in unfiltered glory. I don't want you cutting away from it every five seconds because you don't know how to frame a fucking action scene. At least, as much as this is my controversial choice, at least they give him the chance to show off his damn impressive skills. But that is enough for me to not throw it in the bin. I'm sorry, Raid fans. Don't kill me with your martial arts. I mean, my pick is probably more controversial than those two. I don't know. Let's find out. So I'm going to pick what is considered one of the great, in inverted commas, horrors of the last 10 years, maybe. And I really don't much care for it. It is hereditary. Now, I'm going to pick this film less because of its quality, and I can accept that at times it is an exceptional film. Tony Collette is mesmerising in this and should have probably been up for an Oscar. And as an exploration of grief, the first half is exceptional. But it just isn't the horror bits that I gel with. The second half is just ridiculous. And if it was just being sold as a ridiculous horror, I'd be fine with it. But because this is being sold as a redefining horror to me, I just need to be like, fuck off to it. (laughs) And it's here because it's taken the genre down a path where we can't seem to just have fun with horror anymore. So I saw Sensor last night, and it was mostly a really good film. The the mise-en-scene was exceptional. Michael Smiley pops up. The cast is fun. But it's also, in the end, a fairly silly film. And we can't just acknowledge that Sensor is a fairly silly film. And I was all for it for being silly. But I think because Hereditary was this film that we all said was a masterpiece, and it all is wrapped into this exploration of grief that we can't just think that films are silly. We can't just say that horrors are just fairly often pretty silly. Candyman at times is pretty silly. Had a lot of fun with it. Has great issues, but at times it's a bit silly. It's probably why I liked the advent calendar film at Fright Fest, because it was just being a bit silly, because it was just this kind of quite silly film. And Ari Aster's films are the epitome of elevated horror or what i would call fancy horror because they are fancy horror it's all very fancily put together and at times it feels like arias is just showing me he can direct and construct a film i get that i'm i've watched two of your films one of them is two and a half hours long and is worse than hereditary (laughs) but yeah i just blame hereditary for starting this endless parade of elevated horror for people funding these films that are being pitched to me as elevated horror when really they're just, you know, as horror films, pretty silly. Hereditary gets very silly at the end. We can acknowledge the ending of Hereditary is very silly. I'm sure it scares some people. It didn't scare me. The scariest thing for me in Hereditary is the exploration of grief. So I'm putting Hereditary in the bin because, you know what? I wish we hadn't gone down the elevator horror path. I wish we'd kind of somehow managed to find a way to you know, do interesting horrors 
without calling it elevated. Something like It Follows is probably not elevated horror, but it's just a really damn good horror film. And we could just say it's a really damn good horror film with really good sequences and a, a fabulous synth soundtrack. I just want to stop talking about all this elevated horror nonsense. And I think Hereditary being there and it also allows it to get funded. So Hereditary's in the bin because I want to go in a time machine and stop it. I want to stop it. I want to say Ari Aster, go off and make a lighthearted comedy. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I kind of agree, Russell. I don't like the elevated horror label either. Um, I do like Hereditary, and I would fish it out of the bin. But I find it amusing <laughs> that you've said your problem with Hereditary is it's not silly enough. And my problem with A Nightmare on Elm Street is that it's too silly. <laughs> <laughs> and James, the raid is, is you can not love the raid. If you like the raid too, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Here's what, on a related note, James, do you, um, the Raid came out the same year as Dread, mm. and they're, they're kind of similar in that regard. What are your thoughts on Dread? I <laughs> really like Dread. I honestly connected with the characters more. Fair. Um, I'm glad you mentioned, because when you were describing it, that what because uh, you said that aside from the martial arts, the film didn't work for you, and I thought, what else is there? But, you know, you did explain <laughs> that, um, you know, I... Uh, I'm not as familiar with uh, martial arts cinema and I didn't um, necessarily think, well, d is a lot of detailed character a normal thing in a martial arts film? And But as you pointed out, sometimes, yes, it is, which is fair enough. Mm. I actually, um, I mentioned to my wife that we were talking about this and she actually came up with a controversial pick for all three of our categories. Do you dare hear what they are? <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. I'm all for this. Yeah. Yes, yeah? give it to me. So new, new alternative views for a sequel to go um, in the bin Thor Ragnarok not wow. Thor the Dark World I know <laughs> for a remake this um, probably won't be terribly surprising um, Beauty and the Beast yeah fair enough yeah fair but the controversial pick The Dark Knight well <coughs> hey. that is controversial for context James has a poster of the Joker from the Dark Knight on the wall behind him. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. um, you know, all all opinions are available and of course. it's good that we have that because how boring would it be if we all agreed on everything? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I really enjoyed doing that. We might do that again. We might bring back the sin bin because I had fun yeah. just, you know, <laughs> hoiking some films away from me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Please, God. This is God. And we're going to end this episode because this is coming in October. And it is, of course, Halloween. And we're watching all sorts of amazing horror films this month. We're going to pick three films, one each, on different streaming platforms. So there'll be one from me, one from James, one from Vincent. That maybe you haven't picked up on maybe they're not going to be from the halloween the friday the 13th any of those kind of franchises they're going to be just horror films we think you might have fun this month um i'll go first so in continuing from my thoughts on hereditary and uh, a desire for just a fun horror i've picked escape room now i must clarify this is the 2019 escape room seek out the 2019 escape room i'm aware there are other not very good escape rooms out there uh, and this, it was a big enough hit for a sequel, so I'm not really picking one that wasn't a hit or was, was ignored. 
I'm picking this because I just had fun with it. And I think that more people should just have fun with this film. It's very silly. Uh, Adam Rebuttal directs and it's sort of ripping off Cube and Saw. And it's about a group of people going through an escape room. They go through various rooms and each room is, is very elaborate and very deadly for at least one of them. And all this stuff is really entertaining to watch and it's just very fun and engaging uh, and I just had a total blast with this film and I'm going to seek out the sequel. I didn't see it at the cinema because I, I watched this too soon, too late to go and watch the sequel. But yeah, this is just very fun. So if you want to go, it, I mean, it won't go into my top horrors ever, but if you just want to watch a really enjoyable Halloween watch, go off and watch 2019's Escape Room, which is on Prime and it has in the lead of Taylor Russell, a low key great turn. And this is, yeah, this is just a fun film that is kind of maybe where Saw should have gone because it kind of strips away some of that kind of new metal griminess of Saw. But, you know, people still die and there's still that kind of like fun, you know, you're in a game puppetry nonsense that Saw has. So, yeah, my horror pick for Halloween and there are many, many, many good horrors out there is Escape Room. And if you want some more traditional or, you know, culty horror, go off and get the Arrow Player because Arrow Player has many classic horrors i've been watching some of the phantasm films and they are all sorts of fun <laughs> uh james what's your pick for halloween well i see halloween as a great opportunity to try something you wouldn't usually gravitate towards because tis the season so if you want to watch something gruesome i recommend frank hen and lotter's absolutely fascinating 80s classic basket case now, if you don't know the story, it follows Dwayne, this everyday-seeming guy who's visiting New York while he's carrying around this wicker basket. Okay, a bit weird, but seems innocent enough. Well, inside the wicker basket lurks Belial, who is the misshapen twin of twin brother of Dwayne, who was once conjoined to him, before they were forcibly separated by surgery. Now, they're in New York to take revenge on the doctors, who surgically separated these codependent siblings. And what you have is a film that is as grisly and gory as you'd hope from this strange premise. And it's shot in these places which feel, feel like the grim underbelly of what you usually see New York depicted as. They're locations which you would want to see fully disinfected before you ever step inside. It, but it's grisly, it's entertaining, but what's really surprising was how empathetic it is. Because you have these siblings who have hopes that for living lives which they ultimately cannot live out. And this is especially true of Belial, and the way they generate so much empathy from this odd-looking puppet is just wonderful. And honestly, this is a perfect film to watch late night. So if you've watched, say, your yearly classics or Treehouse of Horror episodes, whatever, then I re fully recommend putting this on late at night. It's on Shudder, which is you can get a free trial from them. And I fully recommend watching Basket Case. Can I also throw Brain Damage into the mix? It's by the same director. And I, ha I haven't watched Basket Case. It's on my list. Mm. But Brain Damage is also grim new york and it's 
really good fun. <laughs> Sounds like Basket Case might make an interesting sort of double bill with Dead Ringers. Ooh, interesting. And also sounds like it might have inspired a certain um, <laughs> twist-heavy horror film. I won't say the director's by, but there's a horror film that's out right now that sounds a bit like uh, Basket Case. Huh. And finally, Vincent, what's your horror pick? Oh, just, uh, that's a big point. It's very nice to be positive after all that negativity of the sin bin. Um, <laughs> I am going to recommend the uh, the last horror film I saw in my sort of major binge of it over Frightfest week. Um, I saw, this is something I saw on Netflix and is still on Netflix, so I recommend check it out. And this is The Strangers. Um, this is a jarring, brutal and gruelling home invasion horror. Um, I've spoken to some um, filmmakers, some writers and directors, and um, some have cited The Strangers as one of their personal scariest films and it's easy to see why. Um, Strangers features um, a couple played by Liv Tyler and Scott Speedman. Um, they get home after a difficult drive um, and well yeah after that things don't get better. Um, there's this steady ratcheting of tension throughout the film um, so they, as I say they get home and their home is invaded by masked figures starts with knocks at the door saying, is so-and-so here? No. A bit later, a knock at the door again. Is so-and-so here? No, you, you know, we told you earlier. Um, and instead, you know, noises outside and um, so and so on. I think it's important to note that home invasion horror can be one of the scariest subgenres. Um, we've... Um, when we did our Mike Flanagan deep dive previously, I mentioned Hush, um, and then also so there's that. There's also The Purge and Your Next, um, and what these films like The Strangers have in common is that the horror in it is quite senseless and also believable. I think, from my perspective anyway, the most frightening thing is the harm that humans inflict on each other. I mean, we've spoken already about um, you know, slashers like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. But the thing about characters like that, uh, whether they're supernatural or not, you know, it could be somebody like Hannibal Lecter, but they are sufficiently distant. They are so emphatically fictional that they you can feel they are removed. They are safely contained within fiction. Whereas random people brutalising other random people is a lot more relatable. Anyone can hurt or kill anyone else. All they need is an absence of empathy. I said I was getting into positivity, but maybe I'm not. <laughs> um, in The Strangers, there is no empathy, and nor is there a distinct motivation. There's a point when one of the victims asks, why us? And the answer is, because you were home. So that could be any of us. So the premise is terrifying, but in addition to that, the film is machine-tooled to produce tension. Uh, director Brian Bertino uses wide angles, deep focus, and some very sinister sounds to create this utterly skin-crawling environment. There's a sequence when um, it's used in, I think, the DVD cover and the Netflix still thumbnail, 
where Liv Tyler is sort of standing in this, you know, wide, opulent living room, and there is someone else. It goes back to what um, there is someone standing in the background. It's like what um, James mentioned earlier in relation to Candyman, frame analysis horror. You've got this wide shot with deep focus. You can see everything that's there. She can't. She doesn't see that fucking person in the background with a bag over his head. Ugh. And all of that tension is juxtaposed with some intensely visceral violence that you can feel. Um, which I suppose is the kind of thing that you have been referring to, Russell, as being that's the fun of horror. Um, it is a, yeah, The Strangers is a simple premise. It's done hideously well. Or should that be beautifully hideous? Um, so yes, if you want a something that's going to make you lock your doors and windows very tight over October, then I recommend The Strangers. So the uh, uh, website for this place made the games look pretty fun, huh? Uh, yeah, they're basically like real-life video games. Oh, really? No, so uh, you've done one of these before. I've done 93 rooms. Yeah, all the big ones. Panic Room, Enigma, Basement, uh, Breakout, Break-In, Lock-In, Lock-Down, of course. Uh, oh, I've done all the bunkers. World War One, World War Two, Cold War, Cold War Two, Pol Pot's Revenge. So that has been our episode. We've been, you know, we've had praise. We've had, you know, some criticism. We've talked about some films we hate. We've talked about a lot of films we love. A lot of films you can note down and go off and seek out, I think, is there. Just maybe not demonic because it'll just bore you to tears. <laughs> well, you know, if you're having trouble sleeping, put demonic on and you'll doze off fairly quickly. <laughs> Vincent, where can people find you? Till next time, of course. Until next time, you strangers can come and invade my home, but I'll kill you. So instead, <laughs> find me on Twitter at Dr. Gain. That's D-R-G-A-I-N-E. Uh, that's where I tweet my um, views. on. All, or that's where you can find Vincent's views um, and where I tweet links to the reviews I write for uh, my blog, uh, Vincent's Views, as well as Snakebite Reviews and the Critical Movie Critics, where, for instance, you can find my review of Candyman. James, whereabouts are you on the interweb? Well, I'm lurking around on Twitter and Letterboxd at BroddersJ04. No Wickabat skits are on hand for me. I, you can find my reviews, podcast appearance, articles, whatever I do at thereviewingrodders.co.uk, where I don't have a review of Candyman out. I do have review of films I saw at Frightfest among the ones I've mentioned and other ones which I did not mention. So why don't you check that out? Or don't. You're not. I'm not your mother. <laughs> Fabulous. And until next time, you can... Find me on Twitter at Russ Loves Movies. That's where I post anything I write. I've got some stuff coming up for uh, Moving Picture Film Club, all to do Grimfest, and an article on The Hitcher, which might be up by now, I don't know. Or you can find me chatting about family films, which I do every single week because, heck, I love running a podcast. And I've had these two guys on. So James was last on talking about The Mask and Liar Liar. Vincent was on talking about uh, Terminator 2 and The Last Action Hero and all the Terminator sequels. And yes, we do talk about Terminator Genesis and we do hate it. If you haven't, if, if you actually, if you want to hear us ranting about it even more, but frankly, if you <laughs> have, if you want more, then, well, thank you very much. <laughs> There's not enough rants and, for that film. 
and they'll both be back on for my next series, which is on musicals. They've both each picked perhaps two of the finest musicals ever. So, you know, definitely go over and listen to all our stuff. And occasionally we talk about horror, but not that often. We just talk about family films. But until next time, this has been Invasion of the Potty People. We've been, I assume, the Potty People. Maybe that's what we are in the title. I think that's what we are. And go off and watch lots of horror. It's, it's October. Go off and watch all the horror films. And you know, stay f- safe, stay groovy, have fun, and take care, take care of yourself. Bye. Toodles.